introduce you. We okay. are very lucky to have Annette Hines here today. Uh, she is an attorney and founding partner of the Special Needs Law Group of Massachusetts, which specializes in estate planning, uh, special needs trusts, and uh, any other kind of issue that might come up for the disability law community. Um, Annette is also a member of our Advocacy Task Force and had a daughter with mitochondrial disease. So she is very close to our community and we are very, very fortunate to have her. She's a huge asset. So if everyone will please go to the, um, to the slides, uh, we will go ahead and get started. Annette, go ahead and take it away. Thanks, Christine, and really I so appreciate you inviting me to be here. I just love this organization, and I was actually present at the very first walk that you ever had. Oh, um, And so um, my daughter um, was diagnosed with mitochondrial disease pretty early in the cycle of um, being able to diagnose. We were one of those folks who actually had to travel down to Georgia to do a, a fresh uh, bone marrow a uh, bone a uh, fresh um muscle biopsy sorry <laughs> bone marrow <laughs> i'm losing my mind um and um so we were able to confirm a diagnosis right around her third birthday um but my daughter unfortunately did pass away she had a pretty severe form of mito and she died um in november of 2013 which is when i found with the time to actually start advocating and becoming more involved on a national level. So again, I'm happy to be here. I want you to know that most of what I'm going to be talking about today is going to be very basic and also it's going to be federally based, federal law based, but there are going to be a few examples of what Massachusetts law says when things come up that might be different from state to state. And I'll point out to you that you can check with your state law to figure out how that impacts you. So in order to understand how to do good planning for folks with special needs, we really need to think about estate planning um, as a whole because how we preserve assets and public benefits for people with disabilities is largely by the use of special needs trusts. So I'm going to get started on my slides now and I'm going to skip over this uh, legal disclaimer thing thingy that my husband and law partner makes me put into all my presentations, which just basically says that we haven't established a client relationship just by giving this presentation with you. So I'm all the way on um, slide three now and talking about what is estate planning. So when I give presentations and I have a live audience, I ask this question and most people automatically say to me, oh, well, it's either something to do with tax planning or it's a will. Um, and, well, both of those pieces are definitely part of estate planning. Estate planning is actually a process of putting a plan in place that doesn't just include your documents. It really includes a look at your assets, a look at your contingency plans, who are all the people who are going to jump into various roles if you're not able to do it anymore. It's more like planning as if you were running a small business and thinking about all of those pieces. Running a small business is not just about you know, where the money is and how much money there is, nor is it all about just the corporation documents that you use to get the business started. It's all about how the business is going to run, and that's what an estate plan is for your personal planning. 
So um, next slide on slide four, um, we talk a lot with our clients about why do they want to plan, you know, because planning is not easy and most people don't plan because it's a long kind of, it can be kind of a long task with a lot of pieces to it. So it can be a little bit overwhelming and, you know, special needs families, we're already busy enough, right? I mean, we're exhausted, <laughs> let's face it. And so, you know, this is just one more thing that we have to add to our long list of things to do. But planning is important because it gives you a big say in what happens to you, your loved ones, and your assets when you cannot actually say what's next and what to do. If you don't plan, your local courts are going to make a plan for you. They may put people that you don't want or people that you don't know in charge of your assets and in charge of your loved ones. And, you know, your state legislatures are the ones who create those plans and enforce them for people who don't have a written plan. Most particularly, assets can really end up with people that you don't expect or don't want, and you can lose out on um, many opportunities to protect assets for your loved one in addition to saving taxes and other good benefits. So that's why we plan. We want to make sure that we know and we say what's going to happen in the future. The most common estate planning documents, because a plan does kind of center around the documents in, in many cases. Um, it's a written plan, and that's how we let people know what we want to happen. Are, um, you're going to use a will. That's probably the least important document, honestly, in your plan, but it is a starting point. And then you're going to look at trusts and a durable power of attorney, which is over financial matters. Healthcare proxy for healthcare decision making, HIPAA authorizations, which is medical records release that allows communication um, between other parties and doctors and medical organizations, and many of you may already be familiar with that. And guardianship and conservatorship appointments and nominations. So that is if you are a guardian or a conservator for somebody who's disabled in your family you may have an opportunity to be able to name the successor to you, depending on who you are and what role you play. So let's start at the beginning. What does a will do? Well, in general, it specifies distributions of your assets. It says, I want you know, this beautiful violin that I've owned for 50 years to go to my niece, Grace, and I want my my wedding rings to go to my daughter, Tammy, and I want that curio cabinet to go to my husband's sister. Um, and the rest of the money should all go, you know, split between my children equally. Those are the common things that people do with their wills. But it also nominates a personal representative or what's known as an executor called different things in different states. And that person's in charge of making sure that the terms of the will are followed. It's a short-lived job, you know, maybe a year or less to a couple of years to follow through on all of the things that the will says needs to get done when a person dies. And also a will in many, many states can nominate a guardian and or a conservator of minor or incapacitated children. 
and I believe that most states have laws or have rules about wills being able to nominate. Now, one thing that you should note, you got to be thinking about what happens in your plan if you're not dead, because wills only take effect after you die. So we're going to talk a little bit about contingency planning while you're still alive, but might be lying in that coma bed, for example, because you got hit by the ice cream truck. I'm on slide seven now. So what is probate? What does your will govern? Your will only governs assets that are going to go through probate. And this is a kind of a difficult thing to wrap your mind around if you've never actually discussed or encountered this before. Most people that I talk to believe that avoiding probate is the most important estate planning objective, when actually it's probably the least important. Sometimes we deliberately want to use probate to make sure that assets get left in a certain way. What matters when you're planning is to really focus in, hyper-focus in on what your goals are and making sure that you get there. Get the most of what you want and the least of what you don't want. We have many options and many paths to get to that goal once we really can identify what it is. So having a blanket statement about, you know, avoiding probate is the best thing is not necessarily the goal. It can be a means to get there, but you need to be thinking only about what your goals are for your plan. So the probate process is what makes people nervous, I think, because it has to do with court. Let's face it, court's scary. I've been going to court for 15 years, and I don't like it much. You know, it's not fun. Um, so if you can avoid court, that's that's a great goal. You know, that might be one of your goals is to keep your private stuff private and avoid a public process like probating your will. If you have a will in Massachusetts, it must be probated even if it does not govern any assets. All states are going to have different rules about that, but they're going to be somewhat similar. Um, the will must be allowed by petitioning to the court, and then a personal representative or executor is going to be appointed in the process. Now, that executor may have nothing to do, or they may have to do the following things that are on the slide. They may need to gather assets. They need to figure out what did the person who died own at their death. What assets are going to go through the probate process. They need to give notice to creditors, heirs at law, and to beneficiaries of any trusts under the will. They need to pay any income and estate taxes if there is any due. They need to pay the debts of the decedent and they need to make distributions to the beneficiaries. And then finally, they can officially um, file an account and close the probate. We still haven't talked about what actually goes through probate. What What is your will going to control? I'm now on slide nine. A will will control disposition of all most some, little, or none of your assets at death. And frankly, you have virtually complete control over how that happens. And then a good estate plan can actually take a look at all of your assets and figure out which assets should go through probate and which should go in another direction. 
Probate assets are whatever assets you hold individually at your death. It's actually easier to talk about what assets do not go through probate and then kind of think of, well, everything else is what's left. So I'm on slide 10. Non-probate assets are probably most of what you own and most of what most people own. They're going to be any jointly held assets. So if you and your husband or you and your wife or you and your mother have a joint bank account where you both are on the account and you both own it, that is not an individual asset and will not be in either one of your estates because you, if, if the person who owns the joint asset with you passes away, you still own the asset. And, and then you own it individually. So many people do very minor estate planning and just start adding folks onto their accounts, and that can work for some people. Assets with death beneficiary designations with people who are still alive to inherit them. So that means some bank accounts and some um Investment accounts have designations like pay on death, transfer on death, in trust for, or have a death beneficiary designation associated with it. And you're going to see this most commonly in, as I mentioned, um, investment accounts. All of your qualified retirement plans, so your IRAs, your 401ks, your 403bs, etc., life insurance absolutely has a death beneficiary designation. Who's going to get this insurance when I die and this pays off? Annuities and some U.S. savings bonds. Then also there there's an asset um, or a way of owning your real estate where you can have somebody who has a life estate or you know has some ownership interest while they're alive and after they pass away, there's a remainder person who owns the rest. That's a little bit more of a complicated structure to have and is used in some very specific estate planning techniques. And what we really care about is any assets that are owned by trusts are non-probate assets. So if you have funded trusts during your lifetime, then those assets are not going to go through probate when you die. They're not going to be governed by your will. So now I'm on slide 11. Let's talk about trusts because this is going to lead us into the real meat of our conversation today. Many people think that trusts are very complicated, but let me tell you, they are not for the Rockefellers anymore. Most people who have... um, even just a little bit, like a house and maybe a little retirement account, if they're doing their planning, are going to consider using trusts in their plan. Again, trusts avoid probate, and that's a goal for some people. As I mentioned, it's a private process versus a public court process. When you have assets in trust, only the people involved in that trust get to know what's in them. When you pass all of your assets through a will, Everything is public record and searchable. So any creditor, any person who's interested can go into your local probate court and can review what assets you left on your death and who got them. Um, So trusts are good for privacy. 
they also have many other purposes. They manage assets during your lifetime and even for a long time after you die. It's a very good way to be able to decide how assets are going to be managed for the people that you love after you're gone. It's kind of reaching through the grave, if you will. They provide sometimes asset protection depending on the kind of trust. They provide protection for irresponsible or vulnerable beneficiaries from themselves. They can do some estate tax planning and they can reduce or eliminate any estate taxes that you may need to pay. And we're going to talk about estate taxes in just a minute. But more importantly for us, they can plan for the long-term care needs and disabled persons' public benefits. And we really care about that. But they can also provide for any charitable intentions that you have and lots more because basically... For the most part, if you can dream it, we can write it in a trust. They can be very creative. Who acts as trustees on slide 12? Well, you know, anybody pretty much can be your trustee. And the beautiful part about doing the planning is that you get to say who takes over after you're gone or even if you want somebody to manage things during your lifetime. So, of course, you can be your own trustee. You can pick family members, friends, professionals, institutions such as banks and trust companies. Sometimes beneficiaries can be their own trustees and sometimes guardians can be good trustees as well. If you have a guardian for a disabled person, they may also fill the role as trustee. We're going to kind of weigh some of the pros and cons of, you know, who, what, what each potential trustee selection has to offer, and um, that's a very individual decision. So now I want to talk about the most common trust, which is the revocable living trust. That's on slide 13. And this is where your will is going to pour over for the most part. So anything that you fund your revocable living trust with during your lifetime is not going to be governed by your will. But some people decide not to fund their revocable living trust during lifetime, and it just sits empty waiting as a vehicle for when you die. And that's okay, too. Then you will go through probate with your will, and your RLT will be funded when you die. But it can provide some really great things while you're still alive. It can provide for centralized asset management during your lifetime. And as you get older or if you have a disability yourself um, and are less able to manage your assets and your resources, this is a good way to have somebody step in and help you with that. Um, It actually works a lot better than powers of attorney, which are financial um, contracts with an agent that you've designated to be able to step in and do um, financial transactions for you. Because... um, especially as you get older, powers of attorney tend to not work so well at the banks. Um, they're very afraid to take a power of attorney and and allow you to use it because they're nervous that it's not still valid, that somebody might have signed a new one, and so forth. But for whatever reason, financial institutions are much less skitterish when it comes to trust. They certainly have their rules and they have their paperwork, but they're much more readily accepting of them. Um, 
revocable living trusts, unfortunately, cannot manage IRAs and qualified retirement plans because those are by law individual assets and RLT is, is not going to be able to manage those. RLTs can also avoid probate, again, and we talked about that, and um, that's only if you fund it during your lifetime. But RLTs can also be estate tax planning vehicles. It can reduce or eliminate for married couples estate tax. So each state has um, their own estate tax limits, and some states have no estate tax, which is wonderful. Florida is one of them. Um, but federally, we do have a federal estate tax. And what that means is this. You see those limits there of $5.34 million and $10.68 million. Um, what that means is that each person can have an estate up to the value of $5.34 million and not have a federal estate tax levied on their estate. That means that for a couple, you can actually have combined assets of over $10 million and not have to worry about federal estate tax. If you don't know what estate tax is, lucky you. It's actually a death tax. What it means is that when you have assets um, in your estate or things that you own when you die, um, those assets are tallied up. And if they're over a certain value, your state and or your federal government levy a tax on those assets before you can pass them along to your beneficiaries, typically your next generation. Um, most people find that pretty appalling. I certainly do. It's um, it's kind of weird to think about the fact that you have been earning money all your life that you have paid income tax on. And then when you went out to purchase goods with what was left after your income tax, you also paid sales tax. And when you invested and saved your money, you paid tax on the earnings from those investments. But it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, if you have accumulated a certain level of assets, if you haven't done proper estate tax planning, then you're going to have to pay tax again before that money can be passed down. And federally, the rate is 40%. So if you left $11 million without doing any estate tax planning as a married couple, you would be assessed a tax of 40% of those assets. That's what that means. It's pretty shocking, right? Although maybe we're all just hoping that we have $11 million when we die. I don't know. I certainly am. Um, so unfortunately, our federal law really, really, really favors married couples. And you can't do this kind of estate tax planning in an RLT unless you're married. Okay, let's move on. So um, on slide 14, we're going to talk um, a little bit further about what RLTs can do for you. Do, for you. So it can provide for the succession of management um, by naming trustees, and it can be extremely flexible. I mentioned this already. If you can dream it, we can draft it. It can provide for lifetime asset protection, divorce protection, and public benefits protection for children, grandchildren, et cetera. It cannot provide for asset protection for you, 
because you're going to actually control the money while you're alive. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But what you may not know is that if you leave assets in trust for your children, even a small amount of money, and they keep it in trust, then that money can be protected from creditors and divorce, depending on your state law. But for most states, that is a possibility. So it could be just that nest egg or just that disaster um, fund that your child or grandchildren or or friend or whoever you know could really use at a time of crisis in their life. And I will say that in the last 10 years, we have seen a lot of people we never would have expected get hit hard by um, the foreclosure crisis, um, get hit hard by the the recession, people lost jobs, people got into credit card debt and credit card trouble, a lot of bankruptcies. And so even though it's not their fault, um, if they had had some assets left to them in trust, uh, these assets would have been safe and protected under those circumstances as opposed to if they had just been left outright to them. So trust can do lots and lots of good things. Um, also, the next generation will not have to pay estate taxes on that money that you've left them if it stays in trust as well. So on slide 15, um, there are a few things that the revocable living trust cannot do. Um, we said that already. It cannot provide asset protection for the creator of the trust, and that's because they are still going to control the money. Um, it cannot protect against costs of long-term care for you. So if you set up a trust, your own revocable living trust, and you put your assets in there, we can protect it for your children and for your beneficiaries, but we cannot protect it for you. Those would still be available assets if you needed to go to a nursing home or if you needed public benefits yourself. We can't do estate tax planning for single individuals, and we um, cannot affect the creator's income taxes at all, which is a good thing. So any assets that you put into a revocable living trust are still your assets. They don't change the way you file your taxes. They don't have to file their own tax return. Nothing changes until you die. Um, it's really important when you're creating your estate plan and also when you're thinking about this for your children, as your disabled children as they're getting older, you know, are incapacity documents right for your child and um, do you need them for yourself? Well, in my opinion, everybody over the age of 18 should have these documents unless guardianship is appropriate. A power of attorney, even if you're using a revocable living trust, is important because there are certain assets like IRAs and other retirement assets that cannot be moved into a revocable living trust. They must be individually owned. Therefore, if you were to become disabled and unable to manage your own financial transactions, you want to have somebody named as an agent who can step in and figure that out. We have a client right now who, um, at 55 years old, went for a run and had a stroke. And so um, he had documents in place that were unfortunately not what he wanted, but they were good enough so that when he needed to be rushed to the hospital and then on to a nursing home and rehab, et cetera, he had somebody in place that could pay the mortgage 
and could, you know, collect his paychecks and make sure the lights stayed on and so forth and pay the pay the rehab bills. Um, but also through a healthcare proxy that he had, there was somebody able to make his healthcare decisions. And the HIPAA authorization allowed him to have the person that he chose as his agent collect all of the medical records that were necessary to continue to make good medical decisions about his care. Some states have HIPAA language within their healthcare proxies. Their statutes allow that. And for the most part, our state does as well. But we find that it's better to have a separate HIPAA authorization, and I will tell you why. A healthcare proxy is actually by law a springing power. What that means is that it doesn't really go into effect until your doctor says so. Your doctor says, oh, this person, uh, something happened, can't make their own healthcare decisions. I'm going to go to the agent and I'm going to have the agent start making decisions. Whether that's a temporary or permanent thing doesn't matter. But a HIPAA, a HIPAA authorization allows people to get medical information and to have communications about that medical information without anybody needing to be incapacitated. And you know where this is really good? If you have children in college, you might have experienced the fact that you're not able to just call up the health center where your child is in school and get healthcare information because your child is over 18 and uh, and an adult. And unless they sign some sort of a release or these HIPAA authorizations, you are not entitled to their personal health information, PHI. So um, having a HIPAA authorization that doesn't require your child to be incapacitated or unable to make their medical decisions is a really good thing. Um, so a little bit more detail about powers of attorney. This power, um, for the most part, is a present power that's concurrent with the principal. Every state has their own power of attorney law, but most states have let go of the idea that powers are springing, meaning that they only come into play when something actually happens, like the healthcare proxy. Almost all powers of attorney around the country now are being drafted as present powers. So the minute you sign the document, there's somebody who's been named as your agent who has the same authority that you do. What does that mean? That means that your person that you've named can take this power of attorney and walk into the bank and empty out your bank account. That's why the banks don't like them. It makes them very, very nervous. Um, and... So oftentimes, you know, we'll have these powers of attorney in place, but again, we'll want to couple that with the trust. Principal or the person who creates the power of attorney can revoke or overrule it at any time. That means that if they have a disagreement with you about the authority or about the decisions, they can, you know, verbally tell you, I'm sorry, but I don't want you making these decisions anymore. This is only good during somebody's lifetime. It ends at the death of the principal. And um, it's really important to use these along with trusts, as we had mentioned. But um, you want to make sure that you have a list, not just one person named as an agent. Because when the time comes, the person you've named may not be available or may not want to act on your behalf. There may be something going on with them, et cetera. 
Um, powers of attorney are pretty cookie cutter for the most part. Everybody can go on LegalZoom or online and find one in their state. But if you do that, most of the time there are several key powers that are missing or not drafted well for your situation. So you want to think about that if you're going to um, use a legal software program. Um, so a little bit more about healthcare proxies on slide 18. Again, um, it's a springing power. That means it goes into effect when the physician says that the person cannot make or communicate informed medical decisions. Because of that, it's not effective for day-to-day decision-making. You can't have somebody fill in a healthcare proxy today and name you as their agent and then tomorrow say, well, they're not able to make their healthcare decisions from now until the end of time. And this is a conversation I have with people as their kids are getting close to 18, and they're trying to figure out if guardianship is appropriate or if they should use lesser forms like POAs and healthcare proxies. You have to have somebody who can basically make their own healthcare decisions except for emergencies, like, you know, they got into a car accident and they're in a coma. Hospital forms, most hospitals have fill-in-the-blank forms, and they're effective about 95% of the time. Um, and, you know, they're better than not having anything. So if you end up in the hospital and the um, hospital asks you to sign something that they've put in front of your face, it's probably better to have somebody noted as an agent in case of, you know, a, a dire emergency than not have anything at all. If you don't have a healthcare agent designated, and you don't have a power of attorney agent designated, um, what happens is somebody has to go to court to get guardianship and or conservatorship, um, however it's labeled in your state, to be able to have the authority to make these legal financial and personal medical decisions for you. Again, we always want to avoid court when we can, so proper planning really helps avoid that unforeseen possibility. Um, HIPAA authorization on 19, we've pretty much discussed. It's authorizing information to be shared with any people that you want it to be shared. And again, it's perfect for that college situation, but it's really a good um, document to have for just about anybody because it goes above and beyond healthcare proxies in the sense that it allows you to be able to share information. Other health-related documents on slide 20 that you may have in your state are mostly around um, advanced directives or living wills or do not resuscitate, do not intubate orders. And most states have some kind of law or regulation around what these need to look like. In Massachusetts, we don't have um, legal wills or um, our legal wills and advanced directives where people are making end-of-life decisions. They are, they are actually um, not enforceable. We request that people really choose a good healthcare agent and make sure that their wishes are known to that healthcare agent so that the healthcare agent can make the choice for them when the time comes. In our state, DNRs, um, and I know from personal experience, uh, have to be documented in our public health department, 
and um, they need to be on record in order to be valid. Okay, so this is where on slide 21 I'm going to talk a little bit about Massachusetts law because guardianship or nominating guardians in your estate plan is very state specific. But in general, um, we have under our guardianship law the ability for parents to appoint and not merely nominate a guardian for their minor children as well as their incapacitated adult children. And this is only parents who have this priority and are able to um, to sign a document that whether they're alive or dead, um, somebody is able to take into court and um, use to get immediate um, temporary guardianship of their children. And this is a really big improvement for us because before 2009, we didn't really have it. We had a little reference to it in our law. But um, most states have adopted some form of the Uniform Probate Code, which actually does have this um, in it, this appointment in it. And um, the nice thing about that, again, is that the court is not choosing for you. You are letting the court know who you want to step in for you. And also, this form goes a lot further than your will. Your will is certainly appointing a guardian for your minor children and your incapacitated adult children, but it only takes effect when you are dead. Sometimes people things happen to people and they're not allowed um, they're not able to care for their children um, while they're alive. And so we actually saw this a bit with 9/11 um, with military folks who have been who have gotten caught out of the country or who have ended up in tour of duties longer than expected. Um, so having this form uh, that somebody can readily take into probate court is very helpful. Okay, now let's talk about special needs trusts. So um, special needs trusts, there are actually two of them, and this is all federal law. How you distinguish which trust that you need to use is really based on where the money is coming from, what assets are being used to fund these trusts. We have third-party trusts, which most of you are going to use because that is a trust that is funded with other people's money, so not the disabled person's own money. And first-party trusts are for disabled folks who have their own money or come into money at some point and need to still qualify for public benefits. So why are special needs trusts important for estate planning? Well, the primary reason is because there are many public benefits that have an asset test. And most of you know that Social Security and many Medicaid benefits have a $2,000 asset limit. So any assets that you own over that $2,000 is going to disqualify you for many federal public benefits that are very sorely needed for people with special health care needs and people with disabilities. But also, special needs trusts are important for managing assets of vulnerable beneficiaries. It, um, special needs trusts also offer creditor protection and divorce protection and protection from other outside threats as well. So what makes a special needs trust a special needs trust? Well, the person must have a disability. 
And most importantly, you're going to be looking for language that talks about supplementing but not supplanting. That means that these trusts and the assets in them are meant to supplement public benefits but not replace them. That's what supplant means. They're not meant to replace the public benefits. The main tenet or idea of Social Security is that they are providing benefits, financial benefits for disabled adults, sometimes children, but mostly adults, who are impoverished and who do not have assets of their own. And they're only providing the absolute basic minimum, basic necessities. Um, you know, most benefits are going to be in that 500 to $700 a month range. I don't know who can live on that in what area of the country that you're in, but for us it is really um stark to try to live on 5 to 700 dollars a month. Um but at any rate, it was meant for supplementing the basic necessities of life. If it takes the place of the basic necessities, then that means that the um government entity does not have to provide the benefit. So does that mean that you should never distribute when it affects public benefits? No. Your trust should be flexible. Sometimes it's okay to affect public benefits or to use trust money instead of public benefits. And a well-drafted trust is going to manage that just fine. You don't want to tie your trustees' hands. The last thing that you should be aware of Um, a very common mistake that I see in not well-drafted special needs trusts is the standard for the trustee to make distributions. And this is where the legal stuff really comes in. It has to be a wholly discretionary standard for the trustee. That means that the trustee could absolutely refuse to distribute for anything, even if the beneficiary is homeless and starving. The trustee has to legally be able to say no and to not have a demand be able to legally be placed on them. So in many, many trusts, you're going to see a standard called HEMS, Health, Education, Maintenance, and Support. That actually provides the beneficiary with an opportunity to demand a distribution from the trustee. You can't have that. You have to have a wholly discretionary standard. So if you already have a special needs trust in your planning, you should pull it out and take a look at it and make sure that you don't have those words, health, education, maintenance, and support in your trust because that will really mess up things when your trust gets reviewed by the public benefits organization that you're getting benefits from. Um, And yes, you do have to turn any trusts over to Social Security or Medicaid in your local area if you have them. There's also a spendthrift clause that's required to be in there, and that basically says that creditors cannot get at the trust assets and the trust assets can't be pledged or, um, you know, put up as collateral for anything. So um, last couple of slides talks a little bit about whether special needs trusts are right for you. And many people do ask these questions um, because they still think of trust as expensive and difficult and burdensome, and they think that there might be a stigma associated with it. Or maybe their child or their adult child is not on benefits now, so they don't think that they need a special needs trust. 
special needs trusts have so much more going for them than just being a special needs trust for public benefits because you've got that creditor and asset protection. You've got somebody in place to manage assets. Um, There's actually no reason not to use them. And what I have seen often is that even folks who are very high functioning or who maybe just have some medical issues but who do not have intellectual disabilities, um, you know, it may be tempting to say that they're never going to need a trust, but at some point in their life, they may need to fall back on some form of public benefits. And you may not be around at that time to make a plan that includes a trust. There's a lot of great ways to do your planning that can include a trust if you need it and not include the special needs trust if you don't need it. And finally, if the trust gets funded and your child doesn't actually need a special needs trust, the money can just be distributed to them. The trustee has the discretion to do that. I don't think that there's a stigma associated with this for most of our folks. Um, Many people that I talk to, their kids are already receiving special education services or some other form of services that are clearly identifying them as a person with special needs. So I don't really think there's much of a stigma associated with this. Um, A couple of more uh, comments and then I want to open up to questions because I realize I'm running late. I'm sorry. Um, But it's really important to note in the slides 27 and 28 the differences between the first party funded trusts with the disabled person's own money, and the third-party trusts, which are funded by other people who love the disabled person. The third-party trusts don't have a lot of restrictions on them, but the first-party trusts are governed um, very tightly by um, Social Security and Medicaid rules, and they do have specific rules about who can create them, and they can only be created and funded until somebody is age 65. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you, but I just last month had somebody come into my office who was unfortunately 68 years old, and I could not use this trust for them. Um, It is a great way to fund assets, um, fund this trust with assets of the disabled person and still maintain public benefits, especially when these assets are not um, substantial. I mean, we usually see these trusts funded with smaller amounts of money that would wreak havoc with public benefits but wouldn't be enough to really um, provide for that person during their lifetime. And recently, um, a lot of people have been asking about the ABLE accounts. We haven't finalized regulations here in our state in Massachusetts, and ABLE accounts are going to be a lot like D4A trusts for smaller amounts of money, but you'll have to look in your state to see you know whether you've enacted them and whether um what the what the criteria are in our state in Massachusetts our able accounts also have these payback to the commonwealth of Massachusetts for medicaid so um the worst part about a d4a trust is that it must have a state recovery or a payback provision to any state that has paid medicaid benefits for the disabled person during their entire lifetime. So um, the only time that they actually get to come in, and this is what a state recovery means, is when the person has passed away. If there are any assets left in that trust, then they have the right to um, make a claim and um, potentially place a lien 
on the assets that they think um, they need to recoup. So uh, we don't usually think of that as a really big deal because if we do end up having a D4A trust that has been funded, we will just make sure we spend that money first before we spend any other monies. And it's really a, a bonus to be able to use this trust and not lose public benefits. But it certainly is something to be aware of if you're talking about large, substantial sums of money. ABLE accounts um, in Massachusetts are going to have that same payback provision. Um, and one of the distinct differences between them is that um, SNT's uh, D4A trusts, first-party trusts, have um, almost no restrictions on what they can pay for but um, ABLE accounts actually have a list of acceptable um, costs um, that they can reimburse. So it's important to start looking at your, um, um, your state law and see what's happening in your state. Um, I told you that I was going to talk a little bit about trustees, but I'm kind of running out of time, and I just want to make a couple of observations here. You need guidance with this. I'm on slide 30 now. Um, you know, many people want to run automatically to their other children as a good option. And it may be a good option in some cases for you, but um, it's really important to think about how the typical children are dealing with um, having to, you know, really have a lifetime of responsibility with the disa their disabled sibling. Also, banks and trust companies t tend to not be great for special needs trusts because they don't really understand them and they get really nervous about not wanting to screw them up. They also have really high minimums. So you want to think a little bit about how that's going to work for you and you can have different phases of your life where you think, you know, for right now it's going to be this person. At this point in my life, I think we'll need to move to that person and so forth. Um, you can fund your trust with any assets that you have, including real estate, cash, retirement funds, your life insurance. I mean, there's no limit to what you can put in there. So I can stay late to take questions. Um, thank you very much for your attention today. I'm sorry I ran a little long. I'm so passionate about this that I could just go on forever. Thank you so much, Annette. This was a fantastic overview, and certainly don't worry about the time. We are... We are just thrilled to have you. We do have a couple minutes. We'll take a few minutes for questions. And I want to remind everyone who's listening that we want to make sure that these questions are general and pertain to everyone. If you have a particular situation that, um, that is going on in your life, we, we're more than happy to help you find someone to, to answer that question. But these are, are going to be general questions that pertain to, to all. So I had, a, um, I had one question that came in through email that I think is really great. So I wanted to go ahead and ask that first. And if anybody else has questions they want to email to me, I am at outreach at mitoaction.org. Again, that's outreach at mitoaction.org. So feel free to email me, Christine Cox, with any questions. Um, but I do want to get started with um, a practical question, which is when is the best time to start the estate planning process? Do you have to have any certain amount of assets before it makes sense to start planning, or is it something that everyone should really be doing? 
Well, my answer to that is, well, first of all, that's a great question and one that almost everybody asks. <laughs> um, but uh, I think really there is no right time. Again, you know, we're all really overwhelmed, I think, as special needs families. So you can only do what you can do. Sometimes you can take this in little pieces, you know, start with something basic and work your way up from there. Um, or maybe one year you talk about, you, you kind of get on your plan to do your wills and trusts and documents, and then the next year you kind of work with a financial planner to take a look at your assets and, you know, maybe take it in small little chunks. But really, if you have somebody, regardless of age, with special needs in your family that you care about, you should really be thinking about doing your planning now. Because, you know, you don't know when you're going to die. I don't know when you're going to die. You don't know if you're going to become disabled. I don't know if you're going to become disabled. So it's important to really address it before tragedy strikes. That makes a lot of sense. Very practical advice. Well, let's go ahead and open up the phone lines now. I'm going to unmute everyone. Um, and I'm going to, you're going to hear a series of beeps. And then we'll go ahead and take questions. So hold the line for one moment. And Annette, are you still with us? Yes. Great. And then we should have um, we should have the ability for others to speak. If you have muted yourself with star six, please make sure that you unmute yourself before you start to talk. Who would like to go first? Okay. Well, hopefully that's an issue with. Um, that's not an issue with the muting. If you do have a question and you're speaking and, and I can't hear you, please go ahead and email me uh, and let me know that. Um, I'm a little new to these controls. So I did have one other question come in through email, so I'm going to go ahead and ask that. And um, this person says, if you have full guardianship of a disabled child, does that cover the durable power of attorney and healthcare proxy and HIPAA needs? Or do you also need those separate documents in addition to full guardianship? That's a really great question. And so um, it, it kind of depends on your state law, but if we're all thinking full guardianship is means the same thing in every state, then yes, that does cover um, personal and financial decision-making for the most part. Some states have actually split up um, conservatorship and guardianship like we have in Massachusetts and you have to have specific authority over the financial as well as the person under two separate orders from the judge. But in general, the answer to your question is yes. You don't need those other documents if you have guardianship. Guardianship actually trumps all of that and is a much better way to go because it does not include any shared authority. It's very clear who's in charge of making the decisions. That's terrific. Um, Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Go ahead. Good morning. This is Paul calling from California. Uh, special need trusts, um, uh, if, uh, if, I, if I die and my special needs daughter uh, is is on my will uh and and in my will i i specify that the funds will not go to her but will go to a special needs trust uh 
must that special needs trust be set up uh, before I die, or uh, is there a uh, an abeyance period where that trust can be set up for her after I die, uh, so these funds can go in as a third party, and uh, uh, as opposed to me naming her in the will, and then she's got all this money that's coming at her, and I suppose she has to do a first party party will. What's what's the timing on that? Well, that is just an amazingly smart question. Um, so in some cases, if you have a really great attorney who's drafting well for you, you can actually put language in the will that allows the executor and or trustee to create the trust for you. And, you know, you really do have to look at individual state law to see what's available to you in your state, but that is certainly an option. Um, for the most part, though, in general, if you name a trust in your will, it has to exist. It has to exist. So you have to also have the trust um, created in order to name it, for the most part. Mm. Okay. So. And you're right about the third party versus first party. By taking care of this in advance, you get to use a trust that does not have any payback provisions to your state. So that is the optimal way to go. And if you're thinking about getting a little fancy, like our California friend here, um, and having your trustee and or your executor create the trust after you're gone, just remember that they may not create it exactly the way that you would want it. So you mm -hmm. might want to think about that a little bit if you're designating... Um, that your trust be created rather than creating it yourself. Two supplemental questions. Uh, typically, how long does it take from my first visit to a lawyer until the uh, the trust is in place? And for this conversation, speaking specifically about the special needs trust. Estate planning is a process, and you know, most attorneys work differently. Um, also, clients are very different. So I have some people who I need to have, you know, 12 meetings with them before they can really figure out what they want. And for some people, they come in with their list and they know what exactly what they want to do and how they want everything to go. So it's mostly client-driven, especially if you have an attorney who's really listening to you. Um, but again, you know, some attorneys are slower than others or are faster than others. And I would say in our office, the average is anywhere from six to eight weeks for a case. In, including, including the process of the client understanding what they really want or yes. from the time you feel they know what they want and, and you're executing no, from the first time we meet you and we agree that we're going to work with you to the time when you're signing the document. Okay. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Good I question. I have a question. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, yes, I'm an adult mito patient. I am disabled. I've been unable to work since 1977. Unfortunately, I am past 65. I have a trust. But at the time that the trust was set up, I didn't know that there was such a thing as special needs trust, and my attorney didn't advise me. So I've got a regular trust, and I take it that now it's 
too late for me to have a special needs trust. I am very concerned about medical expenses associated with mitochondrial disease. And for one specific question, our mito cocktail, the cost of the vitamin cocktail that's not covered under our insurance, health insurance, and things like that, does something like that have to be mentioned specifically into the health care power of attorney? It's not in mine, <laughs> so that I wouldn't be denied the money for the vitamin cocktail just because it's not specifically mentioned. Okay, let me see if I can parse out those two pieces. Um, so first of all, I want to tell you that trusts that were created and funded prior to certain laws going into into place um, don't they're they're not operating under the same rules. They're grandfathered in. So I think you really need oh. to sit down with an attorney and oh. have your trust reviewed to see if you fall into one of those categories, oh, okay? That and that's nice. probably about as detailed as I can get with you on this call today. Okay. But for the general question that you asked about the mito cocktail, I'm not quite sure what you mean by having it specifically in your health care proxy or your power of attorney. Um, those are general powers, and they don't really need to address very specific things like certain um, certain drugs and, and that sort of thing. They can address experimental things, um, but I think more importantly, you want to make sure that um, anybody who you're putting in charge of making decisions for you, if you cannot, they need to understand exactly what you would want um, that might not be it might not be easy for them to just kind of go with the norm. M most people on Mito are just very, very individual, very different, and what works for one person doesn't work for another person. We found that out in our own personal situation that the Mito cocktail didn't work for us at all. Um, so you know your agent is not going to be able to guess at what might be the best course of action for you. So you really want to be very specific, even to the point of maybe writing things down for them before you hand off power to them. Yes, it does need to be in the power of attorney then. Or a separate document that's private between you. Okay. Okay? I appreciate that advice. Thank you. Good question. Well, and Annette, this has been really great. We have about five more minutes, so I'm going to say let's take two more questions from um, from the audience, and um, and then we'll wrap up. So, who would like to go next? Just a reminder that anyone who would like to ask a question, you can either do that over the phone, as folks have been doing, or you can email me at outreach at mitoaction.org. And I've had, I've had one come in over email, and I'll go ahead and read that one. Um, what are some good resources, Annette, or websites or networks for finding an attorney who can help with a special needs trust in a particular state? Oh, okay. So there are a couple of attorney organizations, but that's not the, the be-all and end-all. So there are three specifically that I'm going to name, and then I'm going to give you a couple of other um, thoughts about that. So the National Academy of Elder Law Attorneys has chapters in most states or many states, and um, 
they are also not just elder law attorneys, but they also do um, have attorneys who are well-versed in special needs planning. Um, In addition to that, there are two national organizations that I know of, the Academy of Special Needs Planners, ASNP, and the Special Needs Alliance. Um, Now, those are member organizations, so people kind of self-select in, and that's not necessarily where you might find the best attorney in your state. But if you do use them as a resource, when you're talking to attorneys, make sure you ask them what percentage of their practice is special needs versus elder law, for example. And also ask them if they do more than just write trusts because it's really important to get an attorney who understands Social Security and Medicaid rules and you know, uh, does have an understanding of guardianship. The planning, as you can see from our presentation today, has a lot more to do than with just the documents themselves. You really want to get an attorney who has a very good handle on all of the facets of a special needs plan. That's great advice, Annette, and thank you so much for those resources. I think that's going to be really helpful to people as they move forward. Uh, Does anybody want to take the time to ask one last question? Yes, speaking of resources, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Okay, speaking of resources, this is my first time to join you uh, in any of these podcasts, and I'm I'm looking at the website here, and I I can't figure out uh, how to, if I want to come back and and, uh, listen uh, to this later or share it in my uh, support group and try to direct people to this. Uh, how does one do that? Um, if you go ahead and um, go to, let's see here. If you go to publications, you on the on the first page Got it. website. Got it. The podcasts in iTunes, and that's one way to access our entire library of podcasts. Um, if you have any trouble, please do go ahead and. Okay. Email me at outreach at mitoaction.org, and I'd be happy to point you in the right direction. We That's also perfect. have this particular podcast. Um, it's it's going to be up on the front page of our website for a little while, and once we have the recording, it will be uploaded to that to that page. Um, if you scroll down to most recent news. That's where um, that will be located. Perfect. So we'd Thank love for you, you to so hear much. it, and um, I'm delighted to to say that Annette is going to be doing several more of these podcasts on various special needs and disability law issues. She's a tremendous resource for our community, and I just wanted to thank you so much, Annette, for all of your insights today and for your willingness to share this information with everyone. I think it's been incredibly helpful. I've learned a lot myself, and I'm very grateful to you for for doing this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for allowing me to come in. I can't wait to talk a little bit more about Social Security and Medicaid and all other public benefits and guardianship and school. It's going to be a lot of fun. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Annette, and I hope everyone has a wonderful week. Until next time. Good day. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks.